Welcome, everybody. We've got the, uh, the pastor has uh, recorded this for us tonight. Uh, we will go into the service with the song and with the prayer, prayer list, and then he'll take over. And, uh, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and just quickly pray, and then we'll, we'll go into our song, and then we'll go into the prayer list. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for your blessings, for your love, and just watching over us, for the ability to meeting tonight and to study your word, to hear what you've laid on Brother Jim's heart. And Lord, just thank you for the freedoms that we have. Lord, we've got prayers that we will be bringing before you, request in a bit, but uh, we know that you're in control, and Lord, we just praise you for all that you do for us. In Christ's name, amen. Take your hymnals and join it and sing with uh, hymn number 135, and we'll sing Nothing But the Blood. And we've already got it. He did good. He's packed. <laughs> For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. For those of you that are online, uh, I don't do the commercial quite like he does, but the, uh, the Facebook and the YouTube uh, information is out there, and you can go online and, and see 
the, uh, the bulletin and also the prayer request uh, for tonight that we'll be going through here in just a second. So if you, if you care to do that, you can. And I'm assuming that you have access to look at any notes that might come in on Facebook, Ben? Okay, so if you have any, any contacts or any prayer requests or anything, the updates that you need to share with us, uh, share on Facebook and we'll, we'll be able to see that and hopefully uh, report it at the end. For now, let's take a look at our prayer request. And if you have any that you want to point out immediately that you have updates on, then go ahead and let us know. Um, otherwise, I'll, I'll get some of the highlights down through HBC family. Um, we have uh, still Arthur Hargrove on, on here. We need to continue to remember Arthur. Uh, and also Brenda Gilbert. Mark Raymond, Diane Tatum is still recovering, but she's, she's here Sunday and has been for several weeks and want to continue to remember her and her recovery. Uh, Jack Dowd also, uh, he was here Sunday, but uh, I know there's some procedures that he'll have run here soon, uh, so continue to remember him. Also, Miss Birdie Davis, uh, we need to continue to remember her and Cindy Jordan. I don't have any new updates on Donna Adcock or Ken Adcock, but uh, uh, we are still continuing to remember them. Janet Carter is recovering, and uh, the last update we had about her, she was doing okay. Uh, Cindy Ingram, I don't have any updates on Cindy. Uh, and Sandra Wells, also, uh, there's been some issues with kidney stones, and I know that that uh, uh, Bobby was taking her or had taken her, and I don't know where that stands, but she was back home the last we were told after having gone, been taken to Vanderbilt. Uh, as far as any of the friends and family, uh, I don't have any updates to share with you on anything that I know that's changed on any of those. Uh, normally, Brother Jim has several, you know, there's several family members of, of not only his family, but also Samantha's that are on here. Um, to remember the fam uh, family of, of uh, Sandy Gibson with Sandy's funerals this past week and also uh, Lee McKelvey's family. Uh, remember uh, Miss uh, Betty and the, the other kids after, after Lee passed away. Um, continue to remember the people of Ukraine. Calgary Mission Partnership, continue to remember them. It's not an easy place probably to, to try to sh share the gospel. They, they, uh, we need to pray for them, big time. Motlow BCM still trying to get their building repaired after the flood dam or the freeze damage and uh, continue to remember them. Anybody else, anything? Well then let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for your blessings again, for us to be able to be here. Lord, we've, we've shared several of people that are on our prayer list. Lord, the list is even larger than we even, even shared. You know their needs. You know how they fit into your will. And, and Lord, I pray that they feel our prayers and, and your love and, and your touch. Lord, be with each of us that uh, we reflect you in such a way that Others want to know more about you and, and want to become closer to you and ask questions even 
to us and we be willing to to uh, answer those questions and to share about you lord and be bold in our love for you and and what you've done for us it's easy to share what we know we love you and ask that you be with the service and what brother jim has to share with us lord just bless him and his family and his time away lord and i pray that you just uh, each of us and each of the families represented lord just protect us as we leave here this night and may we take you into our neighborhoods and byways we love you in christ's name amen Welcome to those of you who are here in person, uh, those who have joined on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, our phone live streaming, uh, welcome tonight. I uh, just want to start and say sorry that I'm not here uh, this evening to share with you this message. Uh, it's, we're really not going to get too much into the text, just very little, uh, kind of setting the background, the overview, if you will, uh, for the book of Amos before we begin to do a deep dive into it. Uh, next week and so uh, that's kind of what we're going to do tonight you're going to see a couple of videos one that kind of goes back and looks at the archaeological evidence some of the setting uh, for that time of the divided kingdom and then a second little short video that you'll see kind of gives that broad overall view of some of the things that we'll mention uh, but it goes a little bit more uh, in depth so uh, as we get ready to go into this in a deep dive next week what I want you to realize and understand is that Amos, his very name means burden bearer. Uh, he was a herdsman of sheep. Uh, he was a farmer of sycamore trees. You find that in Amos chapter 1 and verse 1, and in Amos chapter 7 and verse 14, that part about the fig trees uh, there. And so he was doing all of that when the Lord calls him to be a prophet. Now, he lives in a village called Tekoa, so we know more about him than we do about Joel, but he lives in this village of Tekoa, which is about 11 miles from, 11, 12 miles from Jerusalem. And according to the first verse here, uh, Amos prophesied during the reign of Uzziah, uh, who is the king in the southern kingdom from 792 to 740 B.C., and then uh, also under the reign of King Jeroboam II uh, from 793 to 753 uh, B.C. in the northern kingdom of Israel. You will remember that Hosea also was under uh, those same kings. And so uh, this means that he preached about 760 to 750 B.C. Uh, during the reign of those two kings. Now, he's just a, a, a layman, if you will. Uh, he's a humble farmer. He's a humble shepherd uh, who wasn't really an official member, if you will, uh, of the religious uh, Jewish system. He wasn't a, a member of the political establishment. And, and so when, when Amos here delivers his prophecy, both Judah and Israel are enjoying a time of prosperity and security. Uh, it, it isn't a bad time of the things that are going on in the nation per se uh, that, that Amos is delivering this message, at least from the economic standpoint. Uh, things were going great. They weren't at, at war with anybody. They were prospering uh, financially. Uh, you think about the trade routes that passed through the region had brought a lot of wealth into the land. And as a consequence, many of the people were benefiting from the increase in money entering into the country. Uh, some had grown rich, uh, and those favored few uh, had become so affluent 
that they owned two houses. They had a winter house and they had a summer one. Uh, Amos chapter 3 verse 15 is going to tell us that. Uh, they had very expensive furniture uh, to put into both of those. Chapter 6 is going to talk about that. Uh, they had be beds and couches uh, to lie on. They could drink wine and, and they could drink it by the bowlful, if you would, and, and apply the finest lotions to their skin, to themselves. All of that is going to be brought out uh, in the text. But the thing we need to realize, and they needed to realize, is that all of that prosperity and all of that security didn't necessarily mean that God was shining his favor upon the land. In other words, they couldn't just assume that because they were prosperous that somehow that equated to God being satisfied with them. And the same is true for us today. Uh, you know, in, in that society there with Amos, luxury abounded, uh, religion was popular, Israel was flocking to the royal chapel up at Bethel, uh, Judah, they were celebrating the feast there in Jerusalem enthusiastically, but the sins of both nations were beginning to erode the foundation of the religious and the moral fiber of the people. You know, what had happened is making money had become more important than worshiping God. And that's what the book of Amos talks about. So you can see how relevant this is going to be to our society and to where we are today. We even see in the book of Amos that the rich exploited the poor. How true that is today. The judicial system was corrupt. We see that sometimes. And then injustice itself seemed to flourish. You know, God had called Amos from the southern kingdom of Judah to go and to travel northwards to the nation of Israel to warn the Israelites of this coming doom, of this coming judgment, the judgment that was going to come on Judah almost 100 years later. And, and, and you're going to see this list of all these nations as we begin the book of Amos next week. Uh, and, and they're all around Israel. You'll see this in the second video that you're going to see, that the, one of the reasons he lists all those nations is really to put a bullseye on the nation of Israel itself. And, and so uh, e even though those nations around Israel were sinful, God's primary focus, his major concern in this prophecy is the disobedience of his own people who he had rescued out of the Egyptian slavery. And now many of them were oppressing the poor. They were worshiping uh, God in, in just kind of a, a mere formality. And many of God's prophets had already spoken to them about these kinds of sins. And so Amos comes to add his word of prophecy, his warning of judgment that's about to come through the invasion of that uh, terrible, uh, dreaded superpower of the Middle East called the Assyrians who lived way to the north uh, of Israel. And they were going to come down on the nation of Israel and bring destruction to them. And that was going to be a part of God's judgment. So in this book, we're going to see various ways that God uses to highlight the dangers of, that the people were in. Uh, he gives specific details uh, of the judgments of Israel in chapter 3 through chapter 6. He's going to give us in chapter 7 through chapter 9 five visions uh, that, are, that are going to occur that he's going to have there. And, and all of that is going to be interspersed uh, with, uh, in this prophecy with a message of graciousness that if you'll seek me you'll live. 
And then finally, the book is going to end with a promise uh, of a great revival at the end of chapter 9. And so that's what we want to do. I want you to prayerfully watch these two videos. One, as we said, is going to go back to the archaeological and, the, and basically setting the, the foundation for uh, the culture that they were living in in a divided kingdom with Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And then the second video will kind of give you a quick overview, if you will, of the whole book of Amos. And then I'll come back after these two videos and close us out. today's lesson, we're situated at Tel Dan, which is in the northern part of Israel. With the death of Solomon in 930, his son Rehoboam, who was the successor to the throne, went north to the city of Shechem in order to secure his throne. Jeroboam, who had been in Egypt, had different ideas. And the people of the north, when Rehoboam came to Shechem, said, will you tax us as much as your father? And his response, after consulting with a variety of his administrative people, was, I'll tax you even more. At that point, Rehoboam literally had to flee for his life, and the northern kingdom under Jeroboam went its own way. So today we'll be looking at both the north and the south. Let me just mention the south for a second. In Judah, which is the southern kingdom, there was one capital city. That was the city of Jerusalem. There was one major religious center, and that was the city of Jerusalem as well. Judah had a succession of some 19 kings over some 345 years until it fell in 586 to the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. In the north, what we find is that the north had four different kingdoms. We'll talk about some of those in a second. They had some 19 kings, but they went into captivity around 722 BC. And so the time span was only 200 plus years for the life of the northern kingdom. We find too that their worship centers were split. Jeroboam I, because he didn't want people to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple of uh, God, he built a worship center at Bethel, the place where Jacob had had his dream. And there at Bethel, he put golden calves. Here at Dan in the north, he also built a worship center where he put golden calves. And so he said to the Israelites, behold your gods. So here in the north, just behind me, is a huge platform that Avraham Biran has discovered here at Tel Dan. Uh, some of it dates to the days of Jeroboam II, and the foundations of it seem to go back to the days of Jeroboam I. The golden calves are obviously long gone, but this is the probable place of the worship center here at Dan. So Jeroboam was basically saying, my kingdom extends from Dan in the north to Bethel in the south. As the history of the relationship between north and south continues, we find that there was a battle for the plateau of Benjamin. Why? Because the people in Judah wanted to have control of that to have access to the Mediterranean Sea. And so one of the Judean kings, right after the days of Rehoboam, tried to move way north into the territory of the northern kingdom. His name was Ahijah. The northern kingdom, Baasha, responded by pushing south. There's only one more move. And the southern kingdom, because he was being pressured, appealed to the king up in Damascus. 
and the king of Damascus invaded this area. The Bible tells us that he conquered Ion, he conquered Dan, he conquered Abel Beth Maacah, all the way down to the Sea of Galilee. And because of this pressure up here by the Aramean king from Damascus, the relief was given to the Judeans down in the central Benjamin Plateau. And at that point, the central Benjamin Plateau basically came under the control of the Judeans for the remainder of the history. I want to mention a few of these northern kings, some of the 19. One of them, his name is Omri, and he's mentioned only a few times in the Bible, maybe 13 verses or something like that. But Omri, what he did was very significant. In the north, the capital had moved from Shechem, and when an Egyptian pharaoh named Shishak had invaded, it went over to Penuel in Transjordan for a very brief period of time, and then moved back to a site west of the Jordan River called Tirzah, and it was there for a number of years. However, what Omri did is he purchased a piece of land to the west of the watershed, and he built a city there, and they called it Samaria. This was a very significant move because Samaria is located in the hill country of Manasseh. It's an area that is open to outside influences, open to the Jezreel Valley from the north, open to the coastal plain because of some beautiful broad valleys that lead out to the Sharon Plain. Now this also had implications for uh, the relations between the northern kingdom and the Phoenicians to the north of them. What happens at this point is that Omri's son is the very famous Ahab. Ahab, of course, is the one who married the Phoenician princess, Jezebel. Now, when Jezebel came from Phoenicia, she wasn't just bringing a suitcase and her carry-on. She was literally bringing with her all of the deities that they worshipped up there, especially the deity Baal. And so Ahab was the one who initiated, well, it wasn't that he initiated, but he promoted at the behest of his wife Jezebel the worship of Baal. This meant that there would be conflict between the king and Jezebel and the prophetic leadership in the north, namely Elijah and Elisha. You recall the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, where the prophets of Baal and Asherah were gathered together. Uh, there call for sacrifice was not heeded by the god Baal, where Elijah built an altar to God and not only called down the fire from heaven, but initially he drenched the altar with water. And so it was a miraculous thing where God answered the prayers of Elijah. Of course, Jezebel was embarrassed at that point and Elijah fled for his life down to Beersheba, but he will later return uh, to uh, the northern kingdom. Another event from the life of Ahab is that up in Jezreel, he desired Naboth's vineyard. It was a prime piece of real estate that he wanted. He was not able to get it because Naboth, uh, it was family property and it was to be handed down through the generations, so it was forbidden to sell this type of property. However, Jezebel, his wife, had Naboth executed and Ahab was able to secure the vineyard that he desired so much. Well, they have their other events, but one that I'd like to mention is towards the end of his reign, he joined a coalition. This is extra biblical now, but mentioned in the Assyrian sources. And he, with some other kings from the area, went to fight a battle up north against the Assyrian ruler, Shalmaneser III. The year is 853 BC, and there at the Battle of Karkar, according to the Assyrian text, Ahab supplied the coalition with 2,000 chariots. This is a large contingent of chariots, and it says something about the wealth and the power of Ahab. 
Ahab, unfortunately for him, was killed in battle by a chance arrow up fighting the Arameans at Ramoth Gilead. And since I mentioned the Arameans, it's rather interesting that during this whole period, the Arameans up in Damascus fought the Israelites on a number of occasions, sometimes at Ramoth Gilead. I think they were trying to control the Transjordan spice route that ran through the area, or the Ramoth Gilead connection out to the port at Akko. In any case, they had 13 different conflicts, and it was during one of these that Ahab died up in Ramoth Gilead. The Israelites also had conflicts with the Moabites to the east of the Dead Sea area. One in particular, a man named Mesha, who was the ruler of the Moabites, revolted. And we find out about this both in the biblical text and from a very, very large stele, uh, a large stone that's inscribed with writing in ancient Moabite that describes this from the perspective uh, of Mesha. So it's a very important extra-biblical uh, inscription from this period. We find in 841 that the Amri dynasty was basically annihilated by the revolt of Jehu. Jehu at that time uh, killed Jezebel, he killed the northern king, and also because the southern king was visiting, that king was finished as well. So 841 is a kind of a line to draw in the sand because we restart again in the north and the south. So let's go back to the south for just a minute. During the days of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon who followed him, we find that there was an invasion of Shishak. He came from Egypt, uh, he conquered along the way, he destroyed the old Solomonic forts, all of this in 925 BC, and basically moved up into the Jerusalem area and then traveled north into the territory of Jeroboam II. So we find that within five years of the death of Solomon, that huge kingdom had collapsed to basically the hill country of Judah. He was followed by a succession of kings. Asa, the next king, was a very good king. There was an invasion by an Egyptian during his time named Zerah. Uh, Asa was successful because he trusted in God uh, for deliverance. There was another very good king along the way whose name was Jehoshaphat. He attempted to have uh, ship, a shipping venture on the Reed Sea, the Red Sea, down south, but that unfortunately was not successful. Following him was Ahaziah, and he is the one who was executed by Jehu in 841. At that point, there is an intermission in the line of Davidic kings. One of the descendants of Ahab and Jezebel, whose name was Athaliah, took the throne and ruled for a number of years. Athaliah attempted to kill all of the descendants of the Davidic dynasty. She was not successful because Joash was hidden by the priest Jehoiada. And when Joash was old enough, Joash was presented as king, Athaliah was executed, and the Davidic dynasty was back in business again in Jerusalem. What we find in Judah is that there's a very strong period. In the early 8th century, a king named Uzziah, sometimes also called Azariah, was very powerful. He had a rather long rule. Uh, from 792 until 740. Uzziah's kingdom extended from the Benjamin Plateau in Jerusalem all the way down to the Gulf of Elat. We're talking Solomonic proportions at that point. We find, to get jump ahead just a little bit, at the same time up north there was a king called Jeroboam II, and his kingdom stretched from Uzziah's all the way up to Lebo Hamath, the northernmost boundary of the land of Cana. And so during the combined rule, early 8th century, of Jeroboam II and Uzziah in the south, 
the kingdom had reached old Solomonic proportions, which is really very, very special. With the death of Uzziah, his descendants experienced pressure from the north and from the Arameans. And what we find, we have a succession of two not-so-good kings, Jotham and then Ahaz. Ahaz burned his children in the fire. You can see how bad he was. And he was being attacked from the north. And he needed to get some relief from the northern pressure. And so what he did is he appealed to an Assyrian ruler, Tiglath-Pileser III, who responded with a series of invasions. Tiglath-Pileser in 734 invaded the north and conquered the whole coastal plain. In 733, he conquered all of Transjordan and Galilee. And then in 732, he captured Damascus. Now, if you were living in Israel at that time, and this nasty Assyrian is capturing the coastal plain, the Transjordan in the north, what would you do? A lot of the Israelites decided it was time to move to Judah. And at this time, we find that the number of villages in Judah triples. We find at this time that in Jerusalem, the western hill starts to be settled. Eventually, that will be enclosed with a wall to protect the people who had settled there. But we think that many of these people moved from the north to the south. One of the reasons was just self-preservation, but another reason would be, here's the temple in Jerusalem where God's presence is located. God will protect us if we are in the city of Jerusalem. As we've been talking about Jeroboam, there's one series of extra biblical documents that's rather important that were found in the excavations of Samaria. There they found some 63 broken pieces of pottery with writing on them. They were receipts of wine and oil and wheat that were delivered to Samaria. And because we don't have many place names in the Bible about from the tribe of Manasseh, these are important because places are mentioned that we can identify in a map. We know where different portions of the tribe of Manasseh was settled. So it's a very exciting discovery in order to fill out that map of the area of Manasseh. In the north, there were a series of weak kings. Hoshea was the last of the kings who revolted against the Assyrians, and of course, the Assyrians invaded. It was Shalmaneser III who laid siege to the city of Samaria for some three years. And in 722, the city of Samaria fell to the Assyrians. It was Shalmaneser's successor, Sargon II, who deported the Israelites from the north to places up along the Euphrates, over into Babylon, maybe over into Media, quite a ways from their homeland. But the Assyrians not only deported people, but they imported people. And Sargon brought in people from the upper Euphrates. He brought in people from Babylon to settle in the northern kingdom. These people were having trouble making a go of it in the land. And they figured that if we could worship the God of the land, this would be helpful. And so a priest was sent to teach them how to worship the God of the land, namely Yahweh, the one who's worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, there was kind of a mixture in the north in terms of their worship yes and no in terms of fidelity to Yahweh. And what we find is that many scholars believe that these people that were imported into the northern kingdom would later become what we call the Samaritans. And so after the fall of the north in 722, we are left with Judah alone. And that will be the topic of our next lesson. The book of the prophet Amos. 
Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived right near the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. Now, the north had seized its independence about 150 years earlier. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12? And it was currently being ruled by Jeroboam II, a successful military leader. He won lots of battles and new territory for Israel, and he generated lots of wealth. But in the eyes of the prophets, he was one of the worst kings ever. His wealth had led to apathy, and he allowed idol worship for the gods of Canaan, which in turn led to injustice and the neglect of the poor. And it got to the point where Amos couldn't take it anymore. He sensed God calling him to go trek up north to Bethel, an important city that had a large temple, and start announcing God's word to the people. And this book is a collection of his sermons and poems and visions uttered over the years. They were compiled later to give God's people a sense of his divine message to the northern kingdom. And it's a message we still need to hear today. The book has a fairly clear design. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of messages to the nations and Israel. Then chapters 3 to 6 are a collection of poems that express Amos' message to the people of Israel and its leaders. Chapters 7 through 9 contain a series of visions that Amos experienced that depict God's coming judgment on Israel. Let's just dive in. So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line said that Amos was going to speak against Israel. But watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the crosshairs. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. He accuses Israel's wealthy of ignoring the poor and allowing grave injustice in their land, specifically by allowing the poor to be sold into debt slavery and then going on to deny any of these people legal representation. And this, Amos asks, is this the family that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt? The family that God rescued from oppression and slavery? The party's over, Amos says. God is done putting up with you. And so the opening of the next section explains why. God says, I chose you, Israel, from among all the families of the earth. This is an allusion to Genesis 12, how God had called the family of Abraham to become God's blessing to all of the nations. And so then God says, so this is why I will punish you for all of your sin. Israel had a great calling which came with great responsibility and so their sin and rebellion brings great consequences. Now this section brings together a lot of Amos's poems and you'll see a few key themes repeated over and over. So first, he's constantly exposing the religious hypocrisy of Israel's wealthy and their leaders. And he describes how they faithfully attend the religious gatherings, giving offerings and sacrifices, all the while neglecting the poor and ignoring injustice. And Amos says it's all a sham, that God actually hates their worship because it's totally disconnected from how they treat people. God says a real relationship with him will transform a person's relationships. And so Amos' call to true worship is to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now these two words, they're super important for Amos and actually all of the prophets. 
So righteousness, or in Hebrew tzedakah, refers to a standard of right, equitable relationships between people no matter their social differences. And justice, or in Hebrew mishpat, refers to concrete actions that you take to correct injustice and create righteousness. And so both of these are to permeate the life of God's covenant people like a rushing stream fills a dry riverbed. The next theme is Amos's repeated accusations of Israel's idolatry. So remember, when the northern kingdom broke away from southern Judah, their king built two new temples to rival Solomon's in Jerusalem, and he placed a golden calf in each. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12. Since then, Israel had only accumulated more idols, worshiping the gods of sex and weather and war. And in the prophet's view, the worship of these gods always led to injustice because these gods don't require the same degree of justice and righteousness as the God of Israel, not to mention that these gods were immoral themselves, not the God of Israel. He's different. So he can say in one place, seek me that you may live, and then right after that say to Israel, seek good, not evil, that you may live. So true worship of the creator God of Israel, it's synonymous with doing good, with generosity, and with justice. And so the final theme in these chapters is that because Israel and its king have rejected Amos and the other prophets, God will send the day of the Lord. This is a great and terrible act of justice on Israel. And specifically, Amos predicts that a powerful nation will come and conquer and decimate their cities and take the people away into exile. And we know his prediction came true. Some 40 years later, the Assyrian Empire swooped in and did exactly as Amos had said. The book closes with a series of visions that Amos experienced, and they're symbolic depictions of the coming day of the Lord. So he sees Israel devastated by a locust swarm, and then by a scorching fire, and then they're being swallowed up like overripe fruit. And in the final vision, Amos sees God violently striking the pillars of Israel's great idol temple at Bethel, and the whole building comes crumbling down. It's an image of God's justice on the leaders and the gods of Israel. Their end has finally come. But then, all of a sudden, in the final paragraph, we see a glimmer of hope. It picks up this image of Israel as a destroyed building, and God says that out of the ruins, he will one day restore the house of David. In other words, he's going to bring the future messianic king from David's line, and he will rebuild the family of God's people, which, surprisingly, we're told, is going to include people from all of the nations. All of the devastation caused by Israel's sin and God's judgment will that day be reversed. Now this final paragraph is super important. It's the only sign of hope on the other side of judgment. And it helps us see how this book is exploring the relationship between God's justice and his mercy. If God is good, he has to confront and judge evil among Israel and the nations. But his long-term purposes are to restore his world and build a new covenant family. And so through Amos's words, we still today hear his call to learn from Israel's hypocrisy and disaster and to embrace a true worship of this God, which should always lead to justice and righteousness and loving our neighbor. And that's what the book of Amos is all about. Ow.
So you can see uh, by, the, by the setting of the background there, by the overview that you've seen of the book of Amos, just how relevant the book of Amos is to our culture, to our day, to our time, even to us as the church today. And so I want to encourage you to get into the book of Amos, study the book of Amos. We're going to be looking at it over the next several weeks. We'll begin to take that deep dive into chapter 1 and 2 uh, next week. Uh, but just want to say thank you so much uh, for joining us tonight. Let's just go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll finish. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your blessings tonight. Thank you for uh, laying out this background and this overview of the nation of Israel through the book and the prophecy of Amos. Father, I pray that you will help us to see the relevancy for our lives, especially for those who may not know Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Father, I pray that you'll use it to stir their hearts to faith in Christ. And Father, for those who already have faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that you will use it to stir our hearts to make sure that we're sharing with others around us, whether it's our family members, our neighbors, people we come into contact throughout uh, the day, to share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ before that great and terrible day of the Lord when we will not have another chance to respond to the gospel or another chance to share the gospel. And so, Father, I just pray that your blessings will be upon us. Watch over us. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, just want to say thank you for being here in person. Thank you for being there uh, online with us. Uh, we'll be back this coming Sunday, 9.15 for Sunday school, 10.30 for worship. Uh, you come and join us if you can in person. If you can't be here in person for whatever reason, we encourage you to join us there online. You stay safe, and we'll see you this coming Sunday.